Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 in our Bibles today. And the title of the message is Preeminence. Preeminence is the title as we turn to Colossians. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we just thank you for this time that we have in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would open up your word to us. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would see you, Lord, in a different light or confirming already what we know about you, but just putting you, Lord, in that rightful place, keeping you there where you belong. And so, Father, I just thank you so much for your word in this time that we have together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So preeminence. Last week we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. I pointed out that Paul had never visited, or I don't think I'd even told you. I just something that I picked up that I think I forgot to share with you. Paul had never been to Colossae, to this church in the city of Colossae. And so there was the pastor, Epaphras, and you see that in verse 7. He says, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister. Epaphras was believed to be the pastor of the church. And so Paul had gotten wind of the church that was in the city of Colossae. He knew and understood that uh, this church was thriving. He had heard good things about them. They had been in his prayers. And Paul is writing this epistle, this letter to them while he's incarcerated, while he's in prison in Rome. And so at this point, we are getting a pastoral epistle. It's written in about 62 A.D., And my desire after we finished the book of Philippians was to be able to go through and just see Christ in his rightful place. So as opposed to just going through another book and being able to just learn doctrine or learn practice, uh, my desire was just, man, you know, why do we worship Jesus? What is this all about? And this book of Colossians shows the preeminence of Christ. It does exactly what I was praying about and does exactly what I was wishing for. It puts Christ in his rightful place, and it shows us who he is. And so it's very important that we do this. And here's where this today's study is definitely coming from. Um, If we just teach the sheep, and we just uh, go through the the Bible, and we never warn the sheep, then we are fatting the sheep up for the kill. And so it's very important that we not only feed the sheep, but we warn the sheep. In 1st century AD, year 62, when Paul is writing this, there was a group called the Gnostics. And the Greek word Gnostic means, is, is, not means, but uh, is conosco, or, yeah, conosco. In Spanish, we use the word conosco, which means to know. So, te conosco, I know you. So, These Gnostics, this group that had entered into this city and into this church, had told this group of believers, these Christians, that there was secret, mysterious, mystery things that you guys don't know about that we're going to come and present to you. And the Gnostics of today are nothing more than the cults. And the cults are a devi- the cult is de- defined as a deviation from Orthodox Christianity. And so, again, it's very important that we understand what the Bible says about belief. It's very important that we understand what the Word of God is teaching for doctrine. 
And we establish doctrine based on what Jesus said in the Gospels, what Paul or Peter uh, repeat in the, in the epistles, and what is, is performed or we see in the book of Acts. That's where doctrine and practice are formed in the church. And so we have to be very careful to make sure that not only do we understand what the Bible says, but the warnings that are given are very important as well. And that's kind of what we're looking at. So Paul comes to this church. He is excited. He gives thanks for them. He mentions that he's praying for them. And then he concludes or continues on in chapter 1. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 9. And he says, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Jump back to verse 3 and notice he started giving thanks right there. He says in verse 3, chapter 1, We give thanks to, God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. What I mentioned last week, I'll mention again, Paul not only prayed for difficulties, for struggles, for people who were going through hard times, but he prayed when, we, when he heard that people were doing good, when people were doing well. And so we not only want to be praying for people who are struggling and going through difficulty, but we also want to pray for people who are doing well, as Paul shows us here. And so in that verse 9, for this reason, uh, since we, the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I don't know where it comes from. I don't understand how it happens. But oftentimes when people share the Bible and they're sharing that God has commands or God has instructions or there are rules or guidelines for conduct and behavior, it's almost like they come at it oftentimes when I hear it because I listen to messages all the time. But it's almost like a condemning thing, like you're not rising up to the level of expectation. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's kind of this, like from on top, this downward kind of finger-pointing thing. But if you know anything about the God of the Bible, that's not how God approaches us. That's not how God comes at us. God comes from the heart of, child, I love you. I love you. And my commandments are not to be a burden for you. They're they're not to weigh down on you. I know what's good for you. You might not understand it right now. You might struggle with certain things right now, but I'm just letting you know from a heart of love, if you just obey what I'm saying, your life's going to be better. If you just do what I'm asking you to do, I will get you through what you need to get through. I will grow you up in the things of God. You will become a mature man or woman of God if you participate and cooperate with me. And so it's not this condemnation, finger-pointing, kind of looking down. It's God saying, I love you, and I know what's best for you, and I want to help you through this thing called life. Take me at my word. Trust me. And so as you see it here, as we go through, you're just going to see the heart of that and the feel of that. Moving on in verse 10, he says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That you may walk worthy, not worthy as if I better stay saved, but worthy in the sense of, man, I esteem this thing called salvation. 
Lord, you pulled me out of the slave market. You rescued me from myself and my own sin. Then I want to appreciate that. I want to appease that. I want to place that at high esteem. And so that's what he's meaning by walking worthy, pleasing, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. So the walking worthy is fruit produced out of my life, out of your life. How is fruit produced out of our lives? By being tapped into the source. In John chapter 15, the Bible says that we are the branches and he is the vine. And anybody that is tapped into the vine, any branch that is tapped into the vine, the natural byproduct of that branch is going to be to produce fruit. And so what do we need to do to make sure that we are pleasing to God? Stay connected. Stay tapped in. Stay connected to the source. God is patient with us. God is gentle with us. God knows our struggles. He knows where we're at. But as we stay connected, as we stay in communion with the source, then God is going to grow us up and mature us in the things of God as we stay sitting under his word, as we stay in fellowship. Fellowship is so underrated. I notice a lot of Christians don't like to hang out, but hanging out is so good for us. Because hanging out with one another, it just, it teaches us and it shows us the struggles that others have or the difficulties that they're going through. And kind of your life takes kind of a balance of, hey, hey, my life was pretty bad until I started talking to you and yours is worse. No, that's not what we do. So you pray for one another. We're connected to one another. We realize through hanging out that, hey, it's not just about me and my struggles, but in hanging out. You're praying for me. I can pray for you. And the Lord wants that to be taking place. So fruit, the natural byproduct of the branch hanging out in the vine. The natural byproduct is that fruit is going to be produced out of our lives. Um, What I love about fruit is, is it can't be faked. Fruit is lasting. Fruit gives glory to God. It doesn't give glory to a church or a name or a person. It gives glory to God. It's something miraculous that the branch can't do by itself. In January, I've been invited to go up to the mountains and teach with the junior high school group uh, of Calvary Chapel Downey. And my two verses are John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. And so abide in me, and I will abide, and, and, and through me you can produce fruit, is, is basically the gist of the verses. And so I'm going to bring a, a little tree and make sure that the tree, I don't know if it's going to be fakey fruit or real fruit. So I don't know if I'll get like a little lemon tree with some lemons on it, or if I'll make like a little Christmas tree thing, looking thing with little uh, fruit, fake fruit on it. But anyways, so for them, because, you know, the attention span's not real good, so I'm going to break off a branch, I'm going to throw it over here, and I'm going to say, now, what would happen to that branch if I just left it there, and it was disconnected from the source, the tree? And obviously, the kids will know, what? What's going to happen? It's going to eventually die. And that's what we do when we separate ourselves from the Lord. Why would we do that? Why would we not sit under the Lord? Why would we not make sure that we're sitting under teaching that's going to teach us to grow in the things of the Lord? Why would we not want to fellowship with one another where God is requiring that so that we can be tapped into the source and that fruit would come out of our lives? Verse 11 goes on to say, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And so by being now Christians who were not Christians, coming into the world, not knowing God, aliens from God, enemies of God, being born with a sinful nature, he's telling this group that now God has delivered them from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of Satan that he had. And we need to understand that, that we were once not children of God. We do not come into the world as children of God. We have to receive him to be children of God. We have to accept the sacrifice that he made on the cross into our lives personally and say, I receive that. I accept that that sacrifice was made on my behalf. I deserve to be on the cross, but he took it for me. And so jump over with me and we'll see Paul writing to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter four. It's two books behind the book of Colossians, but jump over with me and notice Ephesians chapter two, starting at verse one, what Paul writes to them. Ephesians chapter two, two books behind the book of Colossians. Hold your place in Colossians. We'll come back to that. And notice what Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, another of his pastoral, of his uh, prison epistles. He writes in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." And so that should ring something gigantic, enormous in our hearts that just screams of, I know what I was. I know where I came from. I know what depths he had to go to get me, to buy me back. Even if you gave your life to the Lord at a young age, you were destined for hell without God. You were born in sin. And so no matter what, at what point you gave your life to God, at what point you surrendered your heart to Jesus, to recognize that we belong to this kingdom of darkness. At one point, we were alienated from God. That's why religion is a bad thing. I I look at what took place in Paris, and I look at seven guys in the name of their God, in the name of their religion, killing innocent people, Eight, eight different guys, seven different attacks is what I read. And I look at that and I think, wow, they're doing that in the name of their God. They're doing that in the name of their religion. And they are sincere in their beliefs and yet sincerely wrong. 
And where would we be without God? Where would we be without the hope of his word to guide us and direct us? Without this message of the gospel that sets us free from sin. But not only that, it sets the course of life for us as we walk in obedience to what God is calling us to. And we don't have this twisted thing because there's plenty of groups in the name of Christianity that are off. KKK is a Christian organization, or so they say. There's a, a church that's on the East Coast, and I think they're something Baptist church. And, and th- their message is a message of hate. It's a horrible thing what they're doing. They will go to the funeral of somebody who died and they will protest against it to the people that are there at this funeral that that was judgment on your son because he was living a a lifestyle of sin or something. And they're spewing hate out of their mouth, not understanding that's not the heart of God. And they're doing that in the name of religion. In the first service, I was talking about what took place in the late 80s in Christianity, Christendom. It started in Toronto, and it was this thing called the Toronto Blessing. And what they were doing is they were wanting an experience with the Holy Spirit. And so God is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so they started these practices, and it, it was called the Toronto Blessing, started in Canada, and they started with this thing called Holy Laughter, Holy laughter. And when people said, hey, um, where in the Bible do you get that practice? Well, we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit. We don't want to put a, a, a lid on, on the expressions that the Holy Spirit wants to give to us. So this is what we're doing. Holy, holy laughter turned into moving across the, the country and coming into Pensacola, Florida, turned into holy barking. What? Holy laughter. So the whole congregation for 30 minutes, 45 minutes would just ha, 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 ha. And then out of control, people are laughing in the spirit. That moves across the border, goes into Pensacola, Florida, holy barking. Now people are barking in the spirit like dogs, on their hands and knees barking like dogs. And this is the Holy Spirit manifesting in them. From that, it led to vomiting demons out in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so if you had the demon of alcoholism or the demon of lust or the demon of lying or the demon of gossip, then you would vomit it out. Now we're getting into some off practices. And again, where in the Bible? The Bible says, he who is in you is greater, he is in me, is greater than he who is in the world. The Lord, the Holy Spirit will not house with a demon A Christian cannot be demon-possessed. It's an impossibility, but these things started going. And so from there, you got into all kinds of stuff, and it spread all the way to the West Coast, from Toronto to Pensacola, Florida, across America. All of these experiences are happening, and then what happened to it? It died off, and those people were gone. And not at one point could they ever say, we got that from the Bible. And so how important it is for us to stay plugged into the word, that the things that we do, the experiences that we have, we can confirm them in the word of God. Very important for us. As we go on, he says in 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, as I read that earlier, uh, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
So the giving thanks to the Father, he's the one who qualifies us. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now what Paul goes and the rest of what we're going to look at is he begins to just recognize that who this Jesus is, this Jesus that we worship. Verse 15, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image is icon in the Greek. And so, or yeah, it's E-I-K-O-N, icon. Pastor Chuck Smith writes, the word image comes from the Greek word icon, a document that described a person in photographic detail. Jesus was the image or manifestation of God. The word firstborn comes from the Greek word prototokos and signifies preeminence rather than first in order of birth. The creator, first, beginning of every creation would be a correct translation. And what's taking place here as Paul is writing is this group of Gnostics had come in and amongst all of their beliefs, one of them was God is spirit being, therefore that which is spiritual is holy, but anything that is material is evil. So Jesus couldn't have been a real live person. He was either an emanation or a ghost or a spirit. Like he would walk on the beach on the sand, but he wouldn't leave footprints. And so Paul is saying, no, Jesus was a person. And the material, though it is tainted with evil, doesn't have to be evil. And so as he's giving, he's saying Jesus was the image of God. Jesus is God in full. Jesus would say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, is an important thing for us to understand. Current day Gnostics are found, again, within the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the cults. And a cult is defined as a deviation from Christianity. And here's what's happening. Two weeks ago, I'm called to a house of somebody who's been to our church, and the Mormon church near their house is courting them. And they're about to get baptized. And so as I'm talking to them, I'm like, whoa, whoa, do you not understand that that's a deviation from Orthodox Christianity? That's a false religion. A week after she's about to do that, a Jehovah's Witness knocks on her door and giving her information. And so we need to understand what the Bible says about Jesus. There's salvation in no other name. And I've come across now, because in November we just had October coming out of October and November 1st, we had this Dia de los Muertes, the Day of the Dead, a celebration where there's these, this skeleton face thing in Mexico. There's this whole thing going on. Guys, we got to understand that a lot of this stuff isn't rooted and grounded in the scriptures. What comes out of Catholicism for people who are bored in Catholicism is Santeria, the worship of saints. What comes out of Santeria as people aren't fulfilled with it because they need something deeper and more spiritual is Brujeria, witchcraft. And I don't care if you call it white magic or black magic, it's evil and it's from the devil. So you go from Catholicism to the worship of saints to witchcraft to this day of the dead where you're doing these celebrations, making altars to false gods. And again, 
God has given us his love letter, that we would have these boundaries, that we would understand the heart of God, to be careful what we go and what we begin to practice and what we begin to do. And so that we would look to the scriptures and let God be true and every man a liar. And that the experiences that we have, that they would be based on the word of God. Give me a chapter. Give me a verse. Why you do that. Why you practice that. Why you believe that. Because the Bible says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And they're found in Jesus Christ. And we don't need to go outside of Christ to find experiences with God. They're found in Christ. He is the image. He is the very God of God. Moving on, it says in 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. You and I are created. Jesus is the creator, and we were created for him. In Revelations chapter 4, the Bible says that we were created for his good pleasure. If you live your life in such a way that you bring God pleasure, if you hang out with God, if you commune with God on the daily, guess what God's going to do? God is going to be faithful to grow you up in the things of God. I find it amazing personally that God not only loves me, but he likes me. Think about that. God not only loves you, but God likes you. So there's people that might be invited to your house. Are you here? You get wind that somebody's going to come visit you. Hey, so-and-so is going to come visit. And you're like, yeah, I like them. I like hanging out with them. I like talking with them. We like the same foods. We like watching the same stuff on the tube. I like them. Woo, cool. Or you get that other phone call where somebody's coming over and you're like, no, I don't like them. They're hard to deal with or whatever. God not only loves you, God likes you. God wants to hang out with you. God wants to walk and talk with you. God cares about the things you care about. God wants to be with you. And I just, again, I find that incredible. He made you, and he made you for his pleasure. As you commune with God and hang out with God, God is going to reveal his heart and his will for you as you walk in obedience to that, recognizing, man, Lord, oh no, every time you give me something to do and I do it, it works out well. I just want to keep doing that. And the Bible says that as you delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart in Psalm 37 verse 4. And I believe that's what it was supposed to be. That's what it was meant to be a personal relationship with the creator of the universe that wherever you go, you take him with you. Whatever you do, he's there with you. And as you're delighting in him, he's giving you the desires of your heart. And it's this cycle that just keeps going as you're growing in God. Doesn't mean you've arrived. It doesn't mean that you reach sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that you don't have struggles. It doesn't mean that you don't mess up. But he's right there with you in the mess up and he still loves you and he still likes you and he still wants to be with you. And that just blows us away. And in his time, he will work those things through. He will work those things out as we continue to hang out and commune with him. It's just this incredible thing 
this God of the Bible that wants to be with his kids and he wants to grow us up in the things of God. And I'm just amazed that he doesn't give up on me. Amen. I mean, some of you are like, I don't know how he hasn't given up on you either. But no, on any of us, he loves us and he knows our struggles. Lately, I've been talking to a few people who have gone through a lot of childhood trauma. And it's hard. It's hard as I look at that. It's very difficult. It's been happening for the last month. I got called to a house last week, and I was used as a buffer for this guy that wanted to leave his wife, and I got this other family, this married couple down the street that I went into their home, and I'm talking to them, and I'm just seeing the confusion, and I'm seeing the mess, and just on and on. The Lord's been bringing people in my life just to show me, look, childhood trauma. Look what this one went through. Look at what this one suffered through. And what we do is we try to put our best foot forward. I got this. I can handle this. I just got to white knuckle it. I got to do this on my own. And God is like, let me in. Let me in. Let me help you. I want to do something about it. I want to walk and talk with you through it. I want to grow you up with it. I want to help you along with it. No, no, Lord, no, no. It's too sensitive. It's too, I don't want to deal with it. I want to be in denial is what we end up being. I want to be in denial. I want to pretend it's not going to affect me. I want to pretend that it didn't happen and it'll just go away. It won't go away. It won't go away. As we give it to God, as we walk and talk with God, as we surrender it to God, as we let him know, Lord, I need your help. That's where God shows up when we acknowledge Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. The purpose of the thorn in the flesh, he said, was so that he wouldn't boast because of the revelation that God had given him. God had shown him too much. He knew that he would pride would lift up in his heart, and so he allowed this messenger of Satan to buffet him, 2 Corinthians. And Paul came to the discovery, when I'm weak, I'm leaning on God When I lean on God, I find strength that's supernatural that I don't possess within myself. Huh. Most gladly then would I rather boast in my weakness so that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God gets the glory. I don't get it. He gets it. And he's bringing me through these things, these difficult things that I've struggled with and suffered through. That's what God wants to do in our lives. That's what God wants to do in our hearts. He goes on in verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. That word consist means all things, what is the word? All things are held together. All things are held together. Within the nucleus of an atom, there are protons and neutrons They are unlike, opposite, and they should be repelling, right? They're repelling against one another, positive and negative. Um, But yet, somehow, they're held together. And scientists today can't figure out what holds it together. They've given it a false name, and they've called it atomic glue. Well, we don't know what it is. We can't figure it out. Like charges or dislike charges repel, negative positives, they should be exploding. In fact, when we discovered the atomic bomb, what what did they do? They spliced the atom. And they discovered the atomic bomb. What is holding that together? That within each cell there are protons and neutrons, negative and positive charges. The Bible says right here that he holds it all together. Turn with me over to... Second Peter, hold your place in Colossians. 
in 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to notice verses 10 through 13. 2 Peter chapter 3. It's to the right of the book of Colossians. We're wrapping it up. We really are. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The Bible is saying that there is coming a day where Jesus is going to let it go. Right now, all things he holds together. That word consist, hold together. He's going to let it go, and there's going to be a boom and the elements of the world are going to melt. So the next thing on the prophetic calendar for the church to experience is the rapture of the church. There is coming a day, could come at any moment, and we could see everything lined up for it to take place. The rapture of the church. Church will go to heaven, be with Christ for seven years in what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. On the earth, God's wrath or judgment will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. Within that period of seven years, more people will come to God than ever in any point in history. God will use a time of judgment to draw people to himself. But yet, there will be people that will be resisting that, and they will experience the judgment of God. After that seven-year period of time, the church will come back in what's called the second coming of Christ. And we will come back, and we will rule on earth for a thousand years in a period called the millennium. For 1,000 years, those who will be raptured up will come back to the earth and we will rule over cities, according to Luke, the gospel. From that time, at that time, during that time, the 1,000 years, Satan will be bound or chained for that 1,000 years. After that period of time, Satan will be loosed for a season and believe it or not, people will still want to go after Satan. Hard to believe, but people don't get it. Then the great white throne judgment will take place. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Everyone who rejected Christ as Savior will be thrown into the lake of fire. And that's when this will happen. The world will be destroyed. Heaven will be destroyed. It will be dissolved. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we will live with God forever and ever. Last verse in Colossians that we're going to look at. He holds it all together, verse 17, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so we already looked at firstborn, not born first, but in position. He receives all the benefits of being the, the firstborn. And the preeminence, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up. God wants to be the head of your life, but he will not force you. God loves you. God likes you, wants to be with you, but he will not force you. 
And many people live their lives where they give God the place, the priority, the preeminence in their lives, and then they take it back. And to me, what I see it as, I see it, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's this funnel, and through that funnel, they would take people who live on the farm, they'd take the chicken, they'd put it upside down, the head would be there, they'd chop the head off, and then that chicken would run around with no head, and if you were to look at that, you would think, wow, (laughs) that chicken's kind of fast, a lot of energy, a lot of movement, motion, Hmm, looks alive, but it's dead, it's not alive, and it's just a matter of time before it just collapses. We don't want to be chickens with heads cut off, doing things, living life without being connected to, it says Jesus is the head. He's the one that we get our marching orders from. He's the one that guides us and directs us and leads us. And so we need to be careful to make sure that the things that we're doing, the things that we're practicing, the things that we're believing, we're getting from the head. We're getting from God Almighty to let him lead us, to let him guide us. And as we do that, what is God faithful to do? He's faithful to grow us up. He's faithful to mature us. He's faithful to use us in the places that he wants to use us. And so very important for us to understand all that, that Jesus will have the preeminence, is preeminent. We need to give him that place in our life of being the head of our life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for just this little church in Colossae that we can learn so much from. Lord, we can learn that you are preeminent, first and foremost. And you are the creator And you created all things, and they are created for you, for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that as we study, as we learn, we learn more of you, that you can, Lord, be trusted and trustworthy. I pray that we would surrender the areas of our life that we're not sure of, that we need help with. I pray, Father, that we would continue to obey whatever it is currently that you're impressing upon our hearts to obey. And Lord, as we walk and talk with you, that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of what you have for us. As we are delighting in you, knowing that you will give us the desires of our hearts and even change the desires of our heart to match the things that you want to give us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your ways. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Father, for just the fact that you just are so patient with us as you suffer along with us, Lord. Grow us up, Lord, in God. In Jesus' name, amen.